Welcome to Splainin', a podcast where two guys explain things to each other that they should know, but don't. I'm Evan Smith. And I am Jeff Sims. Welcome, Jeff, to this episode, season two, episode 12. A very exciting episode we have indeed, Mr. Smith, so welcome to you as well. Well, thank you. Thank you. Indeed. You, you see, you're such a host, you, even when I welcome you, you can't not welcome me. Yes, because I'm welcoming you, and I'm just so excited to have you, because you're the best co-host that anyone could ever have. Just saying. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Um, but I'll, <laughs> I'm kind of fluffing you up here now a little bit, making you feel good about yourself, because I got some bad news, bud. Bad news bears? Bad news bears. So remember last episode when I kind of got creative, we'll call it, uh, and I made up a word? I called it, you know. Stuplicity. Stuplicity, yeah. Uh, it's not stuplicity, actually. So in the episode... <laughs> What's well, not stuplicity? Well, the word's not stuplicity. So in the episode... The episode I is said, called stuplicity. I, I know, but in the episode itself, I said stupicity. I did not put did an L you? there. Ah, who's to say? Uh. To be honest, it, this, the source that I have is quite good. Is it um, Catherine's Correction Corner? It's Catherine's Correction's Corner, and I didn't think it merited a full episode, but uh, in the episode I said... <laughs> to herself. It didn't, it didn't uh, merit a guest spot. <laughs> no, just for her to be like, uh, guys, it's stupicity. The word, the word we made up is stupicity, but somehow we still managed to get it wrong. We call the episode stuplicity. I appreciate you our- saying... We, because it was entirely It was a me. joint effort. I obviously... Well, that's true. I mean, I, you approved it, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, you... When, when we have our different marketing discussions, you put it, and I'll, uh, I'll often edit it, or vice versa. You'll edit it, and, and it's always nice to have a second set of eyes. Uh, so, yeah, but what's nice is that it's based on region. So, if you are in the UK... It is stupicity, but if you're in the US, it's stuplicity. So, oh, it's a silent L. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, silent I see. L. Right. <laughs> um, well, on that note, Jeff, and by that note, I mean Evan screwing up note. Well, it's going to be a long note, is it? Today, I was really proud of myself. <laughs> and so were you. I was. Because I did a little post on social media. Because mm-hmm. we're doing, the, the topics today are about philosophy. And we've never done philosophy. And I was no. really excited while doing it. And I thought, hey, I want to do another philosophy next week because I already had an idea as I was reading this one. Like, let's yes. do a, a series, a, a two-part series on philosophy. Yeah. We've never done a two-part series before. This will be exciting. Yeah. So I made this cool little, um, what would you call it? Like little logo, not logo, but poster. Oh, Photoshop. Yeah. Yeah. Cover Photoshop page. stock image thing. Yeah. Anyway, cover, yeah. cover photo. Yeah. And I was really proud of it. It said philosophy, and it said two-part series, explain it, and gave the dates. And then it said something like, you know, uh, look into the brightest minds of the eras by some of the stupidest minds of right now or something. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was, said, please donate at info.gmail.com. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so then today uh, I got a message. Actually, like 20 minutes ago, I got a message from uh, my friend Mark. And Mark yeah. said... <laughs> It's been bugging me all day. I'm. I saw that splaining post, and I was like, "Yeah." I was like, "It's great, right?" And he's like, "Yeah, it's really great." It's like, but it's like, I'm. My brain is dead after all day. Like he works as a mortgage specialist. It's like my brain is just toast. I can't figure out the wordplay, and I was like, "Wordplay." It's like, I mean, I do love some wordplay, and I do use it a lot, but I don't remember wordplay. So anyway, I was like, I didn't want to like act dumb, so I went and looked at the thing, and I was like, "What wordplay?" And in the time it took me to look at the thing, he responded back, 
And the second I looked at the poster, I was like, something doesn't look right. That's not how you spell philosophy. Oh, God. I spelled it with a Y in the middle. And it's, <laughs> it, it, it has an I in it. And I didn't notice. And you didn't notice. I didn't notice either. I didn't and notice Tiffany either. didn't notice when I showed it to her. And no one has commented and said, like, hang on. I think everyone thinks I was trying to be clever. And, like, there's some sort of wordplay that they could. Like, Mark was totally giving me the benefit of the doubt. It's like, yeah, like, what? Is, like, it's really clever and I can't figure it out. I'm like, no, no, that's a typo. And he was like, Evan, no, no, no. it's not. And I was like, that's, no, it is. That's like, duplicity that's, at its yeah. finest. That's stupidity at its finest. Honestly. Um, but it's, it's funny because um, from, from the, the posts that you make, they're oftentimes like the most like creative and you, you always have that like really, really fantastic ideas. And, and this one, I saw it, and immediately I didn't look at the word. Like, normally I comb through it, and I look for, like, spelling errors, grammatical errors. I look for things that, like, should we add this? Should we take away that? How is the hashtag done? Is it the same hashtag? But I just was so impressed by how it looked. I was like, <laughs> buddy, I texted you in instantaneously. I don't even think I looked through it. I texted you instantaneously. I was like, dude, that looks so great. I said, like, heck yeah. And then I circled back and changed the hashtag. But I was like, I didn't even look through the post itself. Like well, that. so anyways, I, it seems I really that the tried rest of the world to, didn't either. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess not. I've really tried to double down. I was like, I'm not going to bring it up. I'm going to look up Philo, P-H-Y-L-O, look up what that means and try and come up with some wordplay in post. Sure. So I looked up Philo and mm-hmm. it means like tribe, race, or like phylum. Like, you know, like when you do the... Um, What's it called? Like the series, it's like the hierarchy of the animal kingdom or something. Do you know, it's like phylum and genus oh, and species yes, yes, and all yes, that yes, stuff. Yes, 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 yes. One of those things is called phylum. Anyway, and it stems from the phylo, or phylo stems from that. Interesting. I, I, okay. All which right. Like, well, maybe there's something that, like, listeners, find something that makes that work, will you? Because I couldn't. And it's, I mean, we're not talking about anything to do with any of that. We're talking about philosophy. So there's no wordplay. It's no. blatantly philosophy. Yes. So, but maybe uh, there's something there. You know what? There. Maybe we can try to go out of our way to connect it today. I mean, isn't that what philosophy is? Is taking abstract ideas and trying to form them into everyday life, but then, you know, sit back and cry because somehow you haven't figured anything out? I mean, it seems like you've just hit the nail on the head there, Jeff. I did. Let me tell you. So before we dive in... Um, into our philosophical top box. Um, I took a philosophy course in high school. Did you? Yeah. So that's where I have this book. And it's just a textbook, but it's a textbook of just like, like obviously pages from different books and pages from different things. And it's just bound together like yep. staples. Yeah. Um, and I just have it. And I, I, once in a blue moon, I'll rip it out and I'll read a little bit. And it's dry as, as anything. A sparrow's um, fart. Yeah, <laughs> but it's but it's enjoyable. I like it. Um, and uh, I remember being in the class and in high school. I think I was in grade eleven or grade ten. And it's an it was taught by the actual university professor who teaches all the stuff at Mun. Uh, oh, they so taught the high school ca- course. Yeah, so they actually oh. came in and taught 
like I think it was like second year philosophy to us, like in our right. class. Nice. Um, so if I'm being honest with you, there are concepts that I had no business learning. Um, yeah. and I, and I remember specifically being upset because I left the class knowing less than I did when I went in <laughs> yeah. because they would teach us concepts that didn't have an answer. And so right. I'd walk away being like, God damn it. I mean, interesting choice of words at a Catholic <laughs> school. Um, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> Uh, being raised being in the Jesuit tradition, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so and that's kind of where this all came from. Yeah, I didn't do any philosophy courses. I think Tiffany did philosophy in university. I did not, but I did watch The Good Place more than once, and the entire show <laughs> is about philosophy. And it's like that's the whole concept of The Good Place is like when they're on the on the Good Place podcast the whole time they're just like, why is this show good? Like, it should be really boring. Like, how did you write a show, Mike Shore, that is literally just people yeah. talking about ethics and somehow it's a, a, a hilarious comedy? Like, they actually coined the phrase of, like, the stupidest, smartest show on television. Because, like, the jokes are so dumb, but you're talking about such high-level thinking all the time. Yeah, I think that's the point. I think it's the relationship between the the overall narrative and the construct of the of the show and the episodes are so um i guess sophisticated so the humor has to be really low level to balance it out a little bit i mean yeah they they got a formula they figured it out somehow and it's just quality um Anyways, before I we think I, before we dive I think, gonna, I think i'm gonna watch it i think i'm gonna watch it you gotta watch it especially you should i'm gonna watch should, it right now all right I'll, <laughs> I'll talk to you later okay you should watch it after we finish our two-part series. You should go okay. watch All of the Good Place. Um, okay. It's only four seasons. It's sure. like 12 episodes a season. Anyway, before we dive in, as a correction, I keep forgetting to do. And it's like, I don't know how long ago I actually did it, but it's a Chernobyl correction. Oh. But it was a send-in correction. So I really It's okay, felt... because Russia Russia is still trying to correct that whole thing. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah. So I said, this is from um, our good friend Kim Wilson up in Ontario. Yes. And um, Kim... Uh, listen to the episode. She was a few episodes behind and she said, I'm just getting to this. Now, this was March 11th, so she's probably cut up now. Um, she said, um, I said that there was no, I thought there was no nuclear power plants in Canada, mm-hmm. which is just untrue. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, um, there are numerous in Canada. Um, as well, I think uh, she's, and I don't know if I said this or whether she was just giving us the information. Um, Chernobyl is not the only nuclear plant to have an accident. Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania had a partial meltdown in uh, 1979. (laughs) 1799. Uh, Fukushima in Japan in March of 2011. Apparently spring is a bad time for nuclear power plants, says Kim. Um, She also said, great episodes so far this season. I'm enjoying them. Jeff's laugh is worth the price of admission. Mm. To which the Slytherin and myself went, oh God, well, I must be hilarious. Yes, that's exactly it. That <laughs> or Jeff's exactly laughing it. at himself, which is also possible. It's also um, possible. I, I, I've been uh, I've been known to at least laugh at myself, if not things that aren't funny. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there are one, two, three. There are five nuclear power plants in Ontario. Uh, two in Pickering, two in Bruce, and one in Darlington, and there's one in New Brunswick. It's interesting because I knew. Th- I feel like so. I mean, I'm sure. A week from now, Catherine will correct us, and I'll be right here, right where I sat, correcting myself. But I'm fairly certain her um, uh, her stepfather, John, is oh, a while ago, he worked at a nuclear power plant in Ontario. I'm fairly oh. certain that that's a thing. Interesting. He definitely worked at some sort of plant in Ontario. I want to say it's a nuclear power plant. I mean, it's possible. There are five. Lots of work mm-hmm. to be had. 
Anyways, I'm sure we'll. Uh, I'm sure I'll correct myself next week. Who's to say? Let's. So, shall we dive? Evan, let's. Um, seatbelts, everyone. Beep 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 beep. Um, so Emmanuel Kant. Uh, he is um, the in Kent. the good place. I think it's Kant. <laughs> no, it's Kant. He's German. Alien Kant was a real percent who was very rarely stable. <laughs> what is that from? I jigger, I jigger was a boozy big who could drink you under the table. <laughs> what is it David from? Hughes, an atmosphere is a wrong finding cable. And Venice wanted to be justice lost his label. There's a Monty Python skit where they. It, they call it the philosopher's drinking song, and they just talk <laughs> about philosophers and how they're drinking. And, and Emmanuel Kent is the first one. Kant. It's, well, Emmanuel Kent is a real pissant. Well, okay, well, they, very, ri- they, they, so they, they made it rhyme. Well, I would like to continue the rhyme, so for the rest of this, it's Kent. But then if you say Kant, you can say, Maria, what is it you can't face? Maria, what is it you can't face? <laughs> Uh, might have to cut that um so uh yeah anyway i was looking at um i can't um i was looking at um like different things to do because you wanted to do a philosophy stuff and i was like what am i gonna do so i just like went on google and i was like looking up top philosophers or top theories by philosophers whatever (laughs) top top 10 philosophy theories i was just about to say Anyway, uh, I looked at like, you know, a list of like 20 philosophers and I saw Kant and I was like, oh, he's like the philosopher that Chidi in The Good Place is the most obsessed with. I was like, why didn't I not think of this? So anyway, he is the founder of critical philosophy, um, a rule of conduct that is unconditional or absolute for all agents, the validity or claim of which does not depend on any desire or end. Um, so categorical imperatives is what I'm going to be talking about today. Ooh. Uh, pre-18th century and the introduction of Kant, ethics centered around one particular focal point. And that focal point, if you uh, didn't know, Jeff, was God. All, I could have guessed. You could have guessed. Pretty much all ethical decisions and moral decisions were based on, like, this is what the deity wants me to do or doesn't want me to do. No yes. matter what religion or belief system, a society's morals derive from the teachings of their religions. Correct. Kant thought that religion and morality were a terrible pairing and that the two should be kept apart. Kant knew that if we looked to religion for our morality, we're not all going to get the same answer. Because, of course, different religions have different ideas and ideologies. Sure. Uh, he, he argued in order to determine what was right, you had to use reason and a sense of consideration for other people. Sure. Which just makes sense. Doesn't uh, it? Kant believed morality to be a constant in a near mathematical sense. One plus one makes two, whether you're atheist, Catholic, Buddhist, or whatever. This is the approach that Kant believed everyone should take when it came to moral truths. But he also pointed out that all choices don't come down to a moral dilemma. He said most of the time, whether or not we ought to do something isn't really a moral choice. Instead, it's just contingent on our desires. So... If you want to have a lot of money, then you ought to get a job. If you want to do well on a test, then you ought to study. If you want to be the best of friends and find your purpose in life, then you ought to have a podcast. Indeed. I was going to say, I feel like there's some uh, song from Oliver or Annie that <laughs> follows that. Yeah, perhaps. You ought to start a podcast. Sure. 
Um, <laughs> I just thought it was going to be something better than that, but uh, no, today is, today is not my day to make fun of you for anything. Sure, sure. Um, Kant called these statements if-then statements or hypothetical imperatives, a command you should follow if you want something. But you could quite easily make the opposite choice. If you want to like go live off the land, enjoy nature, money is not valuable to you, and you will choose to not get a job. That's totally up to you. If you don't care about the course that you're taking, you could choose to not study and get a bad mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Kant says none of that is about morality. That's just a choice you can make. Like you, you know, it's t- entirely up to you which you do. Yes, he viewed morality not in terms of hypothetical imperatives, but categorical imperatives, commands you must follow regardless of your desires. They are moral obligations, and Kant believed you must reach a conclusion on what to do only by pure reason. Okay. He said, it doesn't matter if you want to be moral or not, the moral law is binding on us all. He went on to say, you don't need religion to determine what the law is, because what's right and wrong is totally knowable just by using your intellect. Mm. He hadn't met that many stupid people, I guess, but that's what he No, did. I was going to say, yeah. Um, through the use of what Kant referred to as formulations, you can determine which outcome of the choice before you is moral or not. He came up with four formations of the categorical imperative, uh, but two of them are basically just like further descriptions of the first two. So they rarely get talked about. We're just going to get into the first two, which sort of is by proxy getting into all four of them. Sure. So the first is known as the univ... Ah, shit, I knew I was going to struggle with this. It's easy when you get it, but when you're looking at it, it's scary. The universalizability principle. Okay. So it's like universalizability. Sure. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Universalizability principle. I just had to say it slow for myself. Uh, He says, act only according to that maxim which you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law without contradiction. Now, Kant was German. So that sounds like someone went, what did he say? I don't know. I don't speak German. Put it through Google Translate two or three times. Yeah. I was going to just to repeat it. Yeah. Have you ever done that where you just like take a phrase from a language? Like if you take English, translate it into German, translate that into Spanish, and then translate it back to English, and then try and read what the English sentence is? I've never done that, but I bet it's a laugh. Oh, it's a laugh. It's a great time. Um, fun thing to do if like you're drunk. Um, I found <laughs> out at one point in my life. Um, so (laughs) what is he saying? Well, a maxim is a rule or principle of action. So what he's saying is, what is the general rule behind the action I'm considering doing? Right? Yes. If you do a particular action, you are universalizing that action and therefore saying everyone should always do this. So let's say that's, you know, it's universal. So let's say you're driving to work. You pop into Mary Brown's to get a nice big Mary on your way. Don't you tempt make, me. <laughs> you make your order. Right when you get to the window, you realize you forgot your wallet. Yes. You were going to use Apple Pay. That's fine. Your phone is dead. Mm. Cashier hands you your food and gives you the total. Clearly, he's new because you're not supposed to hand him the food. You're going to make him pay first. Yes. But he's a little flustered. He had a hard day. Yep. You could take your big Mary and drive away and not pay. That is an option yep. that is available to you. It's already in the car. Yep. But that option is stealing. And while stealing is against criminal law in this country, that's irrelevant at the moment because we're just talking moral law. Sure. By driving away, you are saying that the root of your action, stealing, is okay. 
And according to his formulation of universalizability, now everyone can steal all the time because there's no difference in stealing once or stealing all the time. There's no yes. difference in stealing a large thing or a small thing. Mm-hmm. You stealing from a corporation or someone stealing the car from your driveway is the same thing. The act of stealing based on your action has now become a universally acceptable thing to do. Sure. Right? And that's the principle of that. But now there's so pretty also... well what the... Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. So, so what they're taking is, I mean, and, and I'm sure you're going to talk about it a little bit more, but it's, excuse me, but it's polarizing, uh, you know, morality and decision making into black and white scenarios. Like they're leaving no room for exceptions, for gray, for well, for in, in certain cases, no. In certain so cases, when you look not. at like, things like stealing, for instance, or taking something that does not belong to you, yep. which is arguably stealing, I mean, it's I easy mean, to say, you know, if the difference between, well, it's making it sound like me stealing a toonie off of your, your dresser so that I can, you know, get the bus without asking you is this to the same severity as stealing $2 million from a corporate company. Well, no, it's 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 not the same severity, but by choosing morally to do that action, you you are making it a universal choice that, well, you were okay with stealing in that situation, so if someone stole from you, you can't say, well, hang on, you can't steal from me. It's like, well, you just stole, so... Yeah, yeah. so it well, I, I guess severity was the wrong word, but I guess you know universally accepted as okay. Yeah, which obviously it's not. So, like as Kant says, this leads to a contradiction, and according sure. to Kant, moral actions cannot bring about contradictions; they are absolute. So, in the case of stealing, no one is reasonably going to say everyone should steal all the time. Yeah. So, is right? Kant a Sith? <laughs> Only Sith. Only Sith steal in absolute. Um, yes, I think he is. He's a German Sith, so he mm. was real bad. Um, Darth Kant. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no one is going to say everyone should steal all the time. So that's an easy one to be like, okay, well then you, no one should steal ever, right? Because if you steal a Big Mary and then I steal the Big Mary from you and then you steal it back and in the end our Big Mary gets cold no one's eaten it and Betty comes along and swallows it whole and got to go to the vet again, right? It's just a, it's just a bad situation all around. So because no one would say everyone should steal all the time, stealing is not universalizable. Sure. And at its simplest, uh, the root of universalizability is really saying you can't make exceptions for yourself. Because that's a slippery slope, right? Slippery so if you slope. if you think, you know, if you're going to teach kids, or you're going to tell your friends or whoever, sure. no, don't steal. You shouldn't steal. You can't yes. then make an exception for yourself, even if that exception is taking a toonie off my dresser. Do you know who did make an exception for stealing? Who? Our dearest friend, Jean Valjean. And oh, it was I'll, just I'll get there. a loaf of bread. Oh, I'll get there. Don't you worry oh, about that. J- Oh, lovely. Because one man steals one loaf of bread, and here you have a four-hour musical. So anyways, as you were, Evan. Yes, thank you. Um, So second example of universalizability. A killer comes to your door. For the sake of this example, let's say it's the guy who was working at Mary Brown's drive-thru. He lost his job because you stole a big Mary while he was on the clock. And now he's seeking vengeance. Buddy. So Catherine answers the door, and he says, where's Jeff? I'm going to kill him. Ooh. Catherine's instinct, because she was just watching the next Marvel movie with you, presumably, on the couch, is to say, you aren't there, which would be a lie. And according to Kant, it is never okay to lie. 
But Catherine does because she wants to save you. So he goes away. But what Catherine doesn't know is that while she was at the door talking to Kevin, formerly from Mary Brown's, (laughs) you went out the back door and snuck out of the house. Yes. So when Kevin turns to go, he sees you booting it down the road, shoots you, kills you, places (gasps) two pickles over your eyes in some weird fast food ritual burial (laughs) in a killing spree forever referred to from that day forward as the Big Merry Monday Murders. Do I get my own docu-series on Netflix? You do. Or, or, or is the Big Mary Monday Massacre better? The Massacre, the Big Mary, Big Mary Monday Massacre. Yeah, yeah. it is better. It is better. Um, hindsight, it's 2020. Um, it's Actually, it's 2021. Uh, hindsight, it's 2021. We should catch that on. <laughs> Make a hashtag. Go on. Uh, so, if Catherine hadn't lied, Kevin probably would have come into your house looking for you, and the whole time you would have been escaping. According to Kant, Catherine is now responsible for your death, because her lie caused it. Had she told the truth, only the murderer would have been responsible for any death that might have occurred. She could have refused to answer the question, or tried to talk Kevin down. But Kant says the one thing she cannot do is violate the moral law, even if others are doing so, or it's for a really good cause. Okay. Which, I, mean, I know, like- it's, it's a little problematic. Meanwhile... I- the, uh, as as uh, a principle, as a principle, yes, you can kind of agree, but I mean, like, it's a little bit of a stretch to be that the outcome would be different. Obviously, the outcome could be different if she changed her 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 lie or truth, but the yes. outcome could have also been different if I chose not to flee. Maybe if well, yes, the, if you chose to stay and make sure that your fiance was protected from the guy at the door with your gun, which is another moral dilemma. Yes, right to protect exactly. my and family someone, as opposed to lie. So there's 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 way yeah. too many uh, yes. variables to to put blame. But yes, I do agree with what you say that if you you must follow the moral code. Yes, so lying, stealing, lying, right up there in the moral code. So there's no so she Catherine can um, refuse to answer the question or whatever, but she can't lie according to Kant. Obviously, sure. people disagree with Kant. He's one philosopher, but this is the point of categorical imperatives. Yes. Meanwhile, um, on on YouTube, someone said the thing about protecting, um, you know, the person who answered the door. Um, and one of my favorite things to do when I'm researching something on YouTube is like watching a video is to look at the comments. And oh God. Pe- Peekamu in the comment section says, "What in fact caused your death was you being an absolute buffoon trying to escape around the front of the house while the guy with the gun was at your door. <laughs> like, why not just run through your backyard and leave that way? No, no, no. You went out the back door and came around the front. <laughs> so he's like, so let's not blame the Catherine at the door. No. Let's blame the idiot who ran to the front of the house. Yes, yes. Way too many variables. Way too many variables. So anyway, that's formulation one. On we go to formulation two." Cool. Simba's formu- pride. Simba's pride. Jafar's return. The formula of humanity. So Kant says about this, act so that you treat humanity, whether in your own person or in that of another, always as an end and never as a mere means. So basically, using something for your own benefit with no regard for anyone or anything else would be yep. using something as a mere means. Yep. Using things as mere means is sort of their purpose. Yes. So, for example, if you were to, you know, wear a splaining t-shirt as a means to cover your body and also look incredibly cool, that's okay because yep. that's the purpose of a shirt. And if the shirt got a tear or a hole, you could throw it away with complete disregard for the shirt with the knowledge that you can just go buy another one today. Please email us at info.splaining at gmail.com for your replacement shirt now. Whoop, whoop. 
Kant says this is okay, um, but we can't use humans as a means because Kant says humans are ends in ourselves. Yes. We are not mere objects that exist to be used by others. We are our own ends. We're rational and autonomous. We have the ability to set our own goals and work towards them. Yes. T-shirts exist as clothing for people who need clothing. Humans exist for themselves. Correct. So in order to treat Catherine as an end in herself, here's what you need to do. And this is what I will require of you when I marry you at your wedding. I'm officiating, right? Is that what the best man does? I, I, yes, actually, that's exactly what you do. Yeah, great. Okay, good. But first, you have to be ordained as a Roman Catholic priest, so you have about eight years' worth of schooling, so when you're ready. <laughs> well, I mean, you're just going to have to push the wedding. That's all I can say. Sure. Um, to treat someone uh, as an end in themselves means to recognize the humanity of the person you're encountering, to realize that they have goals, values, and interests of their own, and you must morally keep that in mind in your encounters with them. Now, we often use people as a means for something, and that's okay. People need people, but not as a mere means. That's the crucial wording. Yes. We recognize their humanity when we use them, and they agree to being used, right? So if you say, Catherine, can you pick up this at the store for me? You're using Catherine to get something for yourself, but she's agreeing to do it for you. So you're not using her as a mere means. Correct. So for instance, I use the guy in the Crash Course Philosophy video on YouTube to learn about Kantian ethics. You are now using me in the same way to do the same. So the ethics guy and the two of us deserve not to be used as mere means because of our autonomy. Yes. We as humans are self-governed. We're able to set our own ends and make our own free decisions based on our rational wills. Yes. Uh, We can set goals and then take steps to realize those goals. Kant said, this imbues us with absolute moral worth, which means that we shouldn't be manipulated or manipulate others autonomous or sorry, or or manipulate other autonomous agents for our own benefit. Yes. Which brings us back to lying. So if I am deceiving you, you can't make an autonomous decision about how to act because your decision is based on false information that I gave you. Sure. So example, our good friend, Neil deGrasse Tyson, loans you money so that you can go buy some books on wormhole. Wormholes. But your intention the whole time was to use the money for battle passes on Fortnite. Hmm. It's not so far from the truth. No, it's not. Neil wasn't able to make the decision not to loan you the money if he didn't agree with you using it for Fortnite. Yes. You have now treated Neil as a mere means to accomplish your goals with no thought to Neil's own goals or interests. And that is a violation of Kant's second categorical imperative, and therefore is a violation of your friendship with Neil, and therefore is a violation of your friendship with me. Woo! Because if you diss Neil, you diss me. Absolutely. That's, that's the most truth you've spoken all episode. That, at its root, is a moral truth. Don't Absolutely. disrespect Neil. And I have no intentions of, other no. than hypothetically in this situation. Oops. He's um, beat it up, old boy. <laughs> so in a nutshell, that is categorical imperatives. Now, yeah. obviously, because it's a philosophy, a lot of people don't agree with this to the degree that Kant was disgusted about. But mm-hmm. likewise, many people live their lives by this as well. So now I have some discussion examples, which is what I've been most excited for the whole time. Just one second. As you were. Oh, well done. Uh, So warning, some of these are a little bit morbid. um, And the intent is that there's no easy answer. I found these on a New York Times article. I chose the ones I liked. So, um, a man, number one, a man lies to his wife about where they are going in order to get her to a place where a surprise birthday party has been organized. Okay. That's the end. So, he lied. Oh. 
So okay. the, the 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 point of the article was, um, basically like it was like a poll: Would you lie in these situations, or like you know, is it okay to lie? I mean, according to Kant, it's not okay to lie ever, but. Now we're talking about real life and not necessarily Kantian ethics. So, in that situation, is it okay that the man lied to his wife? Yeah. So that's this is this is what I go back to about polarizing things that have no business being polarized, right? Creating blacks and whites of things that you know there there needs to be a, a world of gray to be able to live in. Um, okay. In this particular instance, I think we could argue both. I mean, a yes, it's it's okay to to lie about this because. Uh, you know, you want to keep it a surprise. That's the point of the party, that everybody else at the party, at the surprise party, is there with the understanding that she doesn't know. So if you mm-hmm. actually tell her, then you would be then doing them a disservice and lying to them because they think she's coming not knowing. So when she shows up knowing, you've actually lied or betrayed their trust, which is equally as bad as if you were to, to lie to her. It's so a now, good point. You know what I mean? So now yeah. you're 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 flip-flopping between both of those. Secondly to that, if you don't tell her, then what if she doesn't wear her nice, you know, mom jeans that she's been pulling off all the time? <laughs> yes. And, surprises and surprises on... can backfire, especially parties. If she doesn't like, you know, some people don't like surprise parties. And we've seen the videos yeah. of like someone showing up to a surprise party and being like, this is not what I wanted. And what if she had full intentions on of breaking up with you that night? That her yep. birthday was actually next week and that this is a week early, hence the surprise, and that she was taking you out to dinner this night to sit you down and say, This is it. We're 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 parting ways and she wanted to start her thirtieth year with San's boyfriend, you know? I know. So, That's true. Now that ruins all those plans. So I think you're really this one in particular, I'm going to say the positive outweighs the negative. I say there's more good that can come from this lie than more bad, in which case that I will say that it is okay for this lie. Okay. Risk and reward. Sure. Uh, Number two, uh, Valjean stealing a loaf of bread. Ah, how funny. How do we feel? I mean, here's the thing. So, obviously. A loaf of bread. Obviously. Good Colm Wilkinson there, bud. Thanks, buddy. Um, Obviously, Javert is thinking, you know, Javert is very um, Kantian. Javert is like, the law is the law. There are morals yeah. that you don't break. Absolutely. Um, and is like, but hang on, bud. Just trying to feed the kid, right? Yeah. Yep. But now through that, Cassette learns stealing's okay. Mm-hmm. Right? Now... Wait, what, is, what, wait, wait, wait. what does Cosette steal? She doesn't. Other than the He steals the loaf of bread us. for Cosette. Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess so. Right? Uh, no, 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 no. He does not yeah. steal a loaf of bread for Cosette. No, he does not. Isn't it no. to take care of, of Eponine and Cosette? No. So Valjean... Ah! Uh... No, no, wait. So... No, 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 no. no, no. Wrong no, timeline. No, no, no. I was going to so say... Who, but who does he steal a loaf of bread for? I think he's just hungry. I don't think it's to feed anybody. Oh. I think it's to feed himself. Oh, yeah, I thought he, he, I thought he, he does it. And also, I was just about to say that. I was like, so this is this is the issue with that narrative. Although a fantastic example is that the story only tells us so much. The story only tells because it's only in the very first what six minutes that you learn why he's in jail in the first place. Yeah, because uh, he stole a loaf of bread. Um, but I need to watch Les Mis again. My God, that the opening is so good. It is so good. And I'm Do not betray me. It's just he sucks. Sorry. Um, what Javert is awesome. 
as a character, he's fantastic. But I'll tell you who is not good is... Uh, oh, Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe is garbage. Oh, no, absolute garbage. But when I think Les Mis, I never think the movie. No, no, no. I, but you just I, said, I want to watch Les Mis. So when you yeah, I meant the concert. Oh, well, no, I mean the concert version. I, oh, yeah, I've only the seen the movie like great. once. Yeah, 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 I always yeah, watch yeah. the concert version, the 10th anniversary. That's why I commented oh, on your Cole Milton. So good. Yo, no, so no, no. good. And Philip Quaist as Javert. Great oh, time. He's so he's fantastic. Yeah, he is. Fantastic. Um, sorry, that was a bad side note. But anyway, so that, that one gives us little little input because he just steals a loaf of bread. But what we're missing is obviously you steal a loaf of bread because you're hungry. Obviously, mm-hmm. right? If yep. he's feeding himself, somehow, somehow we forgive him less than if he's feeding a family of five. But right? here's the thing. We also... Can I finish my thought? Yes. Sorry. Um, also, we don't know the relationship of the, the person who owned that bread. Yes, we do. Right? No, we don't. There's just a baker. No. We don't know that, unless I just completely missed out on a... a He steals a loaf of bread from the priest. No, he doesn't. He steals the candlestick from the priest. So he steals again. Evan, yes. Have you never seen Les Mis? Why does he steal a candlestick? Okay, so let me give you a 30-second on Jean Valjean. The very opening of the show, he is in jail, and he gets released. But he gets released... all we know about it is that he stole a loaf of bread. We don't. Yeah. He, he was hungry. It's. It kind of seems like he's stealing it for his family, but it's not really openly said. Also, well, we never see his family. Yeah, exactly. Where's the exactly. family God? Yeah. So they died because he only really he didn't steal them. a big enough loaf of bread. Exactly. So there's a little bit of that. So he gets out of jail, and because he was given these papers, two four six zero one. Oh he's now right. A, took a the criminal. silver. Took my blood. Right. Oh, yeah, right. So he goes in and he steals the candlesticks to sell them and make money. Exactly. So when he goes to the priest, the priest lets him in and says, son, I'll take care of you. He he stays for a night. He feeds him. He clothes him and everything is best kind. But then he Mm. goes, no, in the nighttime, steals a bunch of stuff. Right. Runs in the street, gets caught again. Yeah. Um, and then when the police bring him back, uh, he goes, but you forgot this, my brother. Da, 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 da. Uh, yes, I for- gave the other one too, basically, yeah. Yes. No, yeah, okay, yeah. I'm with you. Right, I have yes. my timeline so messed up. So you are right in saying that he stole a second time. So did he truly learn his lesson the first time? The answer is maybe, because he stole the very first time because he was in need, because he was in hunger, because he was hungry. He stole the second time because he was a convicted criminal and he didn't have a means to work, and also, therefore, would have went hungry. So but it's Kant kind of, would say, and I kind of agree in this case. If he didn't steal the first time, he wouldn't be in the place to have to steal the second time. Not necessarily. I mean, yes, but also not that. Okay. A, yeah, A, of course, if he didn't steal, obviously he wouldn't be in jail. Um, but B, is there a, was there possibly a way for him to get food? Could he have gone to a, uh, you know, a, a nunnery or a, a monastery or a pr- priest? <laughs> place a place where the, where do the priests live anyway we're like sure no priests don't live in the convent the nuns live in the convent the priest yeah, but you called it a nuns. nunnery first off a nunnery is also a thing <laughs> that sounds so funny it is um but yeah so like could he have got bread in another way for it and then the second time he definitely didn't need a seal he all he needed to do was talk to the priest and be like hey man don't have a job have no yep. money yeah i need help Yep. So there was no need to steal. It was a choice that he made. He shouldn't yep. have made the choice to steal. No. But, but I love thing. Valjean. But so arguably, arguably speaking, the choice to steal the second time and the priest's compassion chose him to have that amazing epilogue. Um, yes. And rip up the piece of paper. You mean pr- you don't you don't mean epilogue. 
No, I mean prologue. You're right. Um, thank you. Um, two, four, six, oh, one. And True. he becomes Jean Valjean. And then from that, yeah, from that moment on, he, he gets good. shit done and does good. So you're right. Exactly. So, so in, in the scope of morality, yes, those two first choices were bad. But after that second one, he actually went on to do a lot of good. Right, he he took a girl out of um, prostitution, but not because he st- stole, because the priest was like a lovely, God fearing. Sure. So now we're man. going action and reaction and, and kind of consequence. So I think that's there's there's a and, and I mean God only knows he was probably poor and was hungry because of a poor decision he made prior. So if he didn't make that initial bad decision, he wouldn't have been hungry enough to steal the first time to then steal the second. Do you know what I mean? So it's a cascade of bad decisions. I think the moral of the story is, is that Jean Valjean is immoral and an asshole. I think you're right. Cool. Um, so, next. This is a bit more red. Your father suffers from severe dementia, and he is in a nursing home. When it is time for you to leave, he becomes extremely agitated and often has to be restrained. On the okay, I didn't make this up, obviously. On the occasions when you have said you'd be back tomorrow, he was quite peaceful about your leaving. Uh, you tell him now every time you leave that you'll be back tomorrow, knowing that in a very short time after you leave, he will have forgotten what you said. Do you lie? Do you just be honest? Be honest in saying that. You won't be there tomorrow. You'll be there next Thursday. Like, like, like I'll be there Tuesday, or I'll be there Wednesday, or you'll be there. So you'll be there you... any other day but tomorrow. Well, yeah, I'll be. I'll be. I'll. Yeah, you tell him you'll be there on the day you're actually going, as opposed to saying tomorrow, even though you're not. You know, you're not going tomorrow. Sure. So uh, you're right. Very morbid. Very very dark uh, discussion point. Um, first off, uh, all of these, like you're saying before, there's a reason why they're philosophical arguments. There's no. Yeah. Right or wrong, there's no black or white. There's always Absolutely. gray. And I think when you look at certain situations like this, there's always uh, a room for error, but also room for. And uh, I will tell you, I mean, both sides can always be argue, argued. Yes. Um, and I will also tell you that on almost all of them, eighty percent or more people said yes, they would lie. Yeah. So here's the thing. So like the the idea of telling the truth of like truth is good works if the person could be of of sound mind and rational enough to be able to understand the truth, grasp the truth, and then move forward from the truth, yes. right? So, like, for instance, like a toddler, right? In some instances, or not a toddler, but like like a child, say, like someone who's like maybe four well, to six e- years even, old. Even a toddler. Even a toddler. In yeah. some instances, if it's a tantrum, you do whatever you can to stop the tantrum. But yeah. if it's like four to six years old, you say to them, no, listen, it's going to sting right now, but yeah. blank, 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 blank. And you try to teach a lesson, and they can rationalize it. And in that instance, you tell the truth. From yeah. someone who has dementia, that, that lesson can't be learned. So unfortunately, well, here's the thing. I mean, you're, you're not wrong. I mean, you, you're hitting the nail on the head in terms of the conversation of why you would lie. Yes. But so like obviously their level of autonomy is compromised. So that you know the whole principle of autonomy that we were talking about is we as humans are autonomous. We get to make our own decisions, and lying makes it so that like you know with the Neil example, Neil couldn't decide why he was giving sure. you the money because you lied about it. Yeah. So uh, someone with dementia, their level of autonomy is definitely compromised. But yes. so according to mental health officials. Lies to a dementia patient may only be used in extreme circumstances to avoid physical or psychological harm. That's like their, that's how nurses and doctors are meant to treat with them. Yes. Um, but also, there's a good point of lying or deceiving someone with dementia in any way um, 
degrades their dignity further and does not give them the due respect that they as a person should deserve. Absolutely. Right? So like, because who are you to decide, oh, well, most most of the time they don't remember. Okay, well, they might remember today. Yes. Right? So Yeah, no, no, you're right, you're right, you're right. Right? So it's, it's, it is really gray. I mean, I, can't, I won't deny it. it's not black or white. It is great. And I mean, I'm sure you know, like my grandparents are now suffering with yeah. uh, with with forms of dementia and Alzheimer's yeah. and stuff like that. So unfortunately, like I found myself in this exact same predicament like two yeah. months ago, right? So yeah. having to kind of make that decision on whether or not to calm someone down or or not two months ago, sorry, it was, it was much long, probably three or four months ago. I mean, the timeline doesn't matter. Um, yeah. But having to make the decision of do you resolve this minute or do you try to hold, you know what I mean? Some sort of integrity or dignity later down the line. It's like, that's kind of the decision of, of a, of a, of a basis or a a situation to situation basis. Um, But I mean, it's a great example because you are right. You're, you're tiptoeing on morality. You're tiptoeing on not only ethics on whether or not you lie, but you're stripping away the dignity to choose from the other person because they don't have all the right information. Um, yeah. Which, which kind of plays into both points. I think that's a, like you said, it's a very morbid point, but it's, it's a great one to discuss both points. It is. Here's another one. That's actually a really good one. That's also morbid, but great. Thanks. Um, you're welcome. Uh, but it's good. It's good discussion. And again, it's just from this article, uh, a woman's husband drowned in a car accident when the car plunged off a bridge into the body of water. It was clear from the physical evidence that he desperately tried to get out of the car and died a dreadful death. I mean, I said it was morbid. At the hospital where his body was brought, his wife asked the physician in attendance what kind of death her husband suffered. He replied, he died immediately from the impact of the crash he did not suffer. Did the physician do the right thing? I know. I have, I have more uh, yeah, things to say one. about it if you want me to keep going. So uh, more more things is in like your input or well yes or my input and also like things that I've read through other people's responses like or also but I think these ones might have been my input so like a fighting for his life could potentially be seen as an act of love for her so like maybe it's something she would find solace in but is it your job to censor the information that this woman knows yeah you don't you don't know the woman or what she would want mm-hmm. if we're certain she had hopes of an instant death then should we lie if we know that's what she wants. Sure. But then, what if she found out later what the truth was from, I don't know, a ambulance driver or yeah, something, so, I right? Mean, yeah, that's going to say, I think it's the perspective of the person who's telling it. I think for the physician or the nurse or the, like, whatever the medical professional, I think it's incredibly unethical to lie in that instance. Right. I think if it was, like, your closest friend who, like, you knew that they would take solace in knowing this and that you'd be like, no, it ended quickly. There's like anything like that. Like, I think that is different, but I think it's the same thing. And and in the same breath, it's, you know, what is it going to help you? Is it going to help you just sleep better for the next week? Because you're still going to mourn the person. You're still going to, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Them, Them suffering for, you know, arguably two minutes. Three, three to five minutes, sorry, uh, is not going to help you mourn them less. Well, I, I mean, for some people it would, though. If they know that they suffered, that's something like, you know, they'll be reenacting that in their mind. They'll be haunted oh, by that yeah. fact, and right? I mean, who am I to say? Who am I to say? Yes, that's, yeah. a, that's a terrible thing for me to assume. Yeah. But, you know, if you, but it's, you know, it depends. Like, if you were certain the person would want the truth, then should you tell the truth? Um, but, like, how could you be certain? You know, it's, it's, it's tricky. 
Yeah, that one sucks too, buddy. Thanks. Yeah, it really sucks. Um, here's a really good one because I I think this one is black or white. No pun intended. In an is effort it, to is it, is it is it morbid? No, it's racist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I loved um, your I loved your like no 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 buddy don't worry about it it's only racist. Uh, no, because I said it, this one is not black or white pun intended. No, I heard that. I just find oh. it, the, the tone of... No, 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 no. It's not morbid. It's just racist. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Um, in an effort to enforce rules against racial discrimination, testers were sent out to rent a house. First, an African-American family claiming to be married with two children and an income that was sufficient to pay the rent would try to buy a house. If they were told that the house was not available, a white tester couple with the same family and economic profile would be sent. If they were offered the rental, there would be persuasive evidence of racial discrimination. Is that is that That's the, it. the thing? Yeah, so the line is, of course, on, on part of the testers, everybody who was going there, and this real estate agent, obviously, trying to find out... If you're tr- I mean, if this actually happened, they were trying to find racial discrimination in the you know um, real estate market, right? Yes, yes, yes. So yes. Uh, the whole thing was a ruse. None of these people were going to buy the house, right? Sure, yeah. Um, so, But they all lied to say, oh, yeah, we have this family, which they didn't even have a family. They weren't even a couple. Um, mm. and both, so is that okay? Because they were trying to find out about racial discrimination. Oh, I understand. So it's not the racism that we're trying to decide if that's okay or not. Cause that's no, no, no. Clearly no. that's wrong. It's the, it's the lie of doing that. Mm. See, this is right. interesting. Um, because obviously to find the information of racial dis- di- you know, discrimination and therefore trying to fix it is obviously the appropriate thing and it's like yep. let's take one step backward on the moral scale to try to take five steps forward in the moral scale which is to eliminate racial discrimination exactly for a little like lie so that's kind of like black and white um but yeah. that's also why social experiments and experiments that we have there needs to be disclaimers and disclosure forms and things like that for these for these instances not for this one in particular but like when we see all these like social experiments that are completed at like universities these double blind studies and placebo studies and stuff and things that are going on every time i read about them you're like wow this is crazy i can't believe blank statistic or that but the other part of me is saying if i was hired because you're oftentimes hired or conscript not conscripted but like asked to volunteer for these social experiments there's always a waiver there's always something you sign that says you are a part of an experiment your mm-hmm. results are being used to study blank 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 and i i'm fairly certain they tell you what they are trying to study sometimes they do sometimes they don't right. uh, based on the study yes. so you almost go into the study understanding and knowing what you're doing so how right. do you know what results are objective so in which case if you were to tell the real estate agent there will be people coming in to lie to you some will be lying some will be not like about their their economic status or whatever and seeing if you're going to be racist or not you're not going to get true results no in the same sense you are still lying the same way you know empirically speaking that that uh, Kant said not to lie. So it's it's very interesting that you can kind of have both, but... Uh, and it, I, I mean, that, that to me is the one example that I'm like, yeah, I think they could lie. Interesting like, that you say that, because you say that because it's like you're taking one step backwards, but five steps forward, right? In, in the sort well, of... Well, yeah, and also like, stage, how, right? are you hurting, how are you hurting the real estate agent? You just basically, all you did was find out they're racist. Great. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but just because now I'm just I'm really just playing the devil's advocate. Right Please now. do. This is what I mean. I couldn't. I I was tried to and couldn't find a reason. 
But just because somebody has racial disparity, which I think objectively we can all say is terrible, yep. doesn't mean they as a human deserve to be lied to. The same way you wouldn't lie to your grandparents who are, or your parents or your, your father, sorry, who is, has dementia. Same way you wouldn't lie to the person who's trying to kill their partner. Like, you I, mean, know what I mean, yes, that's what Kant would say. But at the same time, it's like, if there are thousands of black people trying to buy homes who have the financial means and the perfect families and the whatever, and are being turned away because yeah. the real estate agent is a racist. Yeah. And so they can't find a place to live. Well, then let's get that racist real estate agent out of the market. Sure. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Now, is there, is there another way to find out? Maybe. Yeah, but you're right. right? I think you're right. I think it's, I think it's like a, a blind study. Like you just got to go yeah. and lie, do what you yeah. do. Dude, totally agree. Yeah. Um, but maybe there's a better way to do it. Maybe you can do no, it without No, I don't lying. think there is. Right. Unless I mean, you that, get real statistics. Good. Unless you get real yeah. statistics. Like you don't do a study. Like you truly just go in yeah. and you read back through you know, you find a couple of a specific race and say, okay, so you bought this house. We know mm. you purchased a house, which means you have been looking for the last 12 months. Yes. Tell me the dates and the agents you've spoke to in the house right. that you yeah. spoke to. Yeah. Get all the categorical blah, blah, blah. And then, you know what I mean? It's certainly it's a, a lot, lot more, more work. work. <laughs> yeah. But you don't have to lie. But you can sleep at night because you yep. weren't lying. Get it? True. Um. So my last one, then, oh, goodness. is, um, yeah, we can cut some of these if we need to. No, absolutely um, not. These are great. It's just, I hope it's not another depressing one. No, it's not at all. Good. Uh, in November of 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, President Kennedy gave a conference. When asked whether he had discussed any matters other than Cuban missiles with the Soviets, he absolutely denied it. In fact, he had promised the United States would remove missiles from Turkey. This one is unique because, as president, I feel he has a duty to withhold information. Oh, wait, that was the end of the statement. Yes. So do we, do we know that he didn't talk about anything else or that he did? No, this is factual. We have, okay. Th- yeah, this has been found out. But obviously it's a matter of national defense. Yes. He, can't, he can't go tell the public we're removing missiles from Turkey because— the whatever country isn't supposed to know that can't know that, so they can't say it out loud. Sure. Right? Mm. So that's, I mean, the, I'm sure though in those situations, most of the things we hear are either, if not lies, then not the whole truths. Yeah. <sighs> and that's tricky too? Yeah, it's, it's tricky in, in, a different, in a different sense. So I'm just going to quickly, so uh, do you know who Jordan Peterson is? I don't think so. Gotcha. So he is an author and a clinical psychologist and an, and a uh, sorry clinical psychologist and uh, philosopher as well. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess a philosopher, I guess. But he uh, he's gotten a lot of scrutiny over the last like we'll say five or six years. Uh, he has a lot of conservative, I guess, viewpoints on a lot of social, um, I guess, discussions. But uh, anyways, he came up with a book a couple of years ago called Twelve Rules for Life: An Antidote for Chaos. Okay. A great book uh, on one of the things, one of the rules is um, always tell the truth. And then it says comma, or at least don't lie. Right. So, so you can so, leave parts of the, tr- of the truth out. Exactly. So it's kind of like you're never lying. You're just not disclosing everything. So right. in this particular instance, I think 
well, actually, to be honest with you, the first statement where where you just said, did you talk about anything else other than the Cuban Missile Crisis? And he said, or other than... Yeah, he lied. He said no. Yeah, so I guess that's it. So um, I think the appropriate answer, yes, we talked about lots of things. Some things we shouldn't, we, we cannot talk on, you know, CBC. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> I think that would be the appropriate answer. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You that's can, black and white to me. There are ways to get around... Um, yeah. Not lying, uh, right? I think that that I think you 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 nailed it on the head of like he is the president. We have to assume he is allowed to have it. Like I work at Best Buy. There's information I know that you shouldn't and can't know because of confidentiality. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's yeah. Like as the president of the United States, there's obviously information that he should know that we should not. So it's yes. like, but I think con- it'd be, Sorry, he should not lie though. He should say no. And that's what Khan said about when you know there's a killer at your door. Kant says Catherine shouldn't lie. She should. One of the th- one of her options is refuse to answer the question. So you could say, if he was asked the question, he'll say, "I can't disclose what, el- what other things we talked about." Right, and I'm sure, to be honest, because when I watch The West Wing, which is all about, um, you know, the American politics and stuff, sure, and the press secretary, whenever the president comes in from a briefing or whatever, if the president gets caught in a question that he, she's like, "Oh God," and like if he gets trapped and says something, she's like, "You shouldn't have said that. You should have said." I can't yes. answer that or blah, blah, blah. like, you know, they're, yeah. they're meant to not lie. Like as soon as you start losing your, losing the truth with the American people, that's a very slippery slope. Exactly. Like look at, look at uh, Trump's entire presidency. That guy tiptoes and dances around answers like nothing else. Yeah. I mean, that is literally the best example of lying as a president. Yes. Um, being I, able I, to just waltz your way around questions <laughs> about trying to tell the truth or not. Or just blatantly lie as well. Yes. So in conclusion, Kant says, don't lie, ever. Um, what a good so Kant. <laughs> getting old. But. So in every, one of those, <laughs> in every one of those examples, Kant would tell the truth and instruct you that it is your moral imperative to do the same. But in almost all those examples, as we found through discussion, it becomes less of a conversation about lying being wrong and more of a conversation about weighing the consequences of what happens if you do lie. Yeah, And that, my friend, is utilitarianism. And to hear more about that, you're just going to have to come back next week as I tell you about it. Yeah, I like it. Hmm. I think think you hit it right on the head. It's about weighing out the uh, risk over reward, the positive over the negative. Yep, consequences. That is great. So, ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy your break. Welcome back, friends! Yes, and thank you for returning from whatever psychological, physiological state you were in. Yeah, so the hope from this episode is that you walk away questioning every moral decision you've ever made. I mean, isn't that what falling asleep at night is referred to as? Oh, woof. <laughs> Stop, that's it, now I'm up all night. Thinking about every, everything I said back when I was in grade three. When I call the teacher mom. <laughs> Do you ever have those where you like you sit down and you think of old stupid things you've said in the past and you just relive it? And it was like 20 years ago and you're like, why would I ever think about that? But it's still there and you still it's, oh, feel it's the in shame there. and it's, anguish. It, rocking out in whatever part of your brain has that memory. Mm-hmm. 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 Cool. So it is my turn to talk about some things. Would you like to talk about things, Evan? I would like to talk about all of them. Sure. So uh, my philosophical uh, topic is a paradox. 
and it is known as the paradox of identity. Okay. Um, so identity in in a much simpler form than I guess what is going on today is identity politics. But more specifically, it is speaking of um, there is two frames of mind. Okay, there is one which is the mereological theory of identity, and there is the spatial temporal continuity theory. So there's two theories when it comes to identity of of uh, of a person, state, thing, entity, anything. Okay. Okay. So the mereological theory of identity states that the identity of something is the sum of all of its parts. Okay. Okay. The spatial temporal continuity theory, okay, is an object can maintain its identity as so long as the change that it has is gradual and the form or the shape of the object is preserved through the gradual changes of its components' materials. Okay. Does that make sense to you? Do you need me to break it down a little bit for you? Um, no, I don't think so. Okay. I think I understand. Sure. Yeah. Um, but for those of you at home who, who, who might need it just in case. So myriological theory is pretty well saying that no matter what, if, uh, whatever it is you're trying to identify, the sum is what it is. That if one of those things changes, then it's no longer what it is, what it originally was. Uh, that sentence was confusing. Spatial temporal <laughs> What it continuity. is, what it originally was. Yeah. Spatial temp- temporal continuity theory states that as long as it is a gradual change and maintains its form and shape, that it'll still remain as it is. So these are very vague definitions, but you'll see what I mean. Okay. Okay. So I have a couple of examples that kind of bring up this discussion okay okay so i'm going to bring up uh the first one is going to be about one of our favorite sports that you and i share mr evan smith golf indeed golf. <laughs> field hockey <laughs> lacrosse <laughs> high jump beach volleyball <laughs> the luge <Water> polo. <laughs> A the, brisk uh, walk through Three but, Pond. <laughs> What's the one where they get the little tube and slide down the hill? Bobsled. No, no, there's yes. a, no. There's a better. There's a different name for it. It's a, it's like bobsled, but there's a different. No, the, is it lu, is it luge? Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's luge. Yeah. Anyways, so just to give you an idea, I'm going to give you some things. Okay. So first off, the information that I'm providing comes specifically from another podcast. And it's a podcast I'm going to shout from the hills because it's one of my favorite podcasts. It is Revisionist History by one Ah, of my favorite authors, Malcolm Gladwell. This comes from Season 2, Episode 1, A Good Walk Spoiled. Okay. So please go listen uh, because he is brilliant. So the average golf course, Evan, is roughly 200 acres. Okay. Okay. Uh, specifically, we're talking about California. Okay, so California private golf courses, which are some of the most prestigious in the world and most expensive and exclusive. Uh, the average is about two hundred acres. Okay. Okay. So California has a property tax law, and it's called the highest and best use, okay. which means whatever the property could be used the best for, that is how you'll be taxed on it. So, for instance, oh. Yeah. So let's say you have an acre of land in the heart of California, right in LA, the 
best, most sought-out place in the world, but you're using it to farm turnips. <laughs> the, the state of California will not look at you and tax you as if you are farming turnips. They will tax you as if you have a 600-unit condominium. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, it's for highest and best use, which some yeah. people have issues with, some people do not. But it is it what it is. It just makes sense. Well, it does and it doesn't. I mean, that's a completely other ethical conversation. But we won't get into that. That's tax law. So uh, that's just their tax law. So this, this practice obviously scares golf course owners. Because in California, they own up to 200 acres of the best real estate in California. Used right. for golf players. Think of when you think of the highest and best use of that plot of land. It is not for a privately owned golf course. Make sense? No. Yeah. So if you own 200 acres of land in some of the, you know, it's obviously not going to be the best for you. So in 1960, the California country clubs, they kind of grouped themselves together and they tried to propose an amendment to the tax law so they can kind of maintain their property tax and not be taxed under the highest and best use. Okay. Okay. So they kind of found their champion. They found someone to take over and try to win this war against the tax law. They found none other than the comedian Bob Hope, who oh, okay. I don't know if you know Bob Hope or sure kind do. of yeah. So uh, he was a huge golf player, and he kind of just won the hearts of all golf players around the world. But anyways, through his campaigning uh, for all that kind of fun stuff, uh, came into play Proposition Thirteen into the California tax law. So in 1978, it is set at 1% of the value of the property is the property tax. So for okay. even numbers, if the property is worth a million dollars or the highest and best use is worth a million dollars, you are taxed at $100,000. Make sense? Right. Yeah. Sure. So properties would only get reassessed um, within one to two years, obviously, but they would only get reassessed if there was a change in ownership or if there was new construction. Okay. Makes sense. This is part yes. of the 1978 new Proposition 13. Okay. Okay. So normal property tax works as every one to two years, your property gets reassessed and your yep. property tax gets readjusted based on that value. Yep. Okay. Except in California now. Because of Proposition 13, you are locked in to your property taxes rates as of 1978 unless your property has changed ownership. Oh. And what ownership implies is ownership of more than 50% of more changes hands. Okay. Okay, so for as just a simple example, let's say you bought your house in 1969. You still live there today and you still have ownership of that house. You are still locked into the same property tax value as of 1978, because that's when the law took place, the Proposition wow. 13. Make sense? Yes, they're not paying a whole lot of property tax then. No, they are not, exactly. So they're paying 1% of what it was worth back in 1978 versus what it's worth now. Amazing. Uh, so you have a lot of like families who have passed down houses generationally, but have kept the right. same name just to maintain right. property tax. Like they've named their children their first name? No, no, I think that's... No, that doesn't matter. As long as it's the same family. Stuff. Okay. I just mean like, I, I mean like, you bought your house and it just stays in your name even though someone else right. is living there. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so how does this actually contribute to our 
identity crisis that we have, right? Mm-hmm. Or the paradox that we see ourselves. So with private golf clubs and Proposition 13, as long as these old golf courses are not perceived by tax law to be changing hands, they retain their old 1978 property taxes. Right. Okay. So Brentwood, LA Country Club, all of these, you know, massive California country clubs and golf courses, they have uh, assumed that they haven't changed hands. Okay. They have been the same country club. They've been the same location. They have the same name. Everything has been the same since they've opened back in like the 50s or the 40s. Right. So in 2012, a local LA newspaper runs an article stating that almost all of the California golf courses run what they call equity ownership, which means that the country clubs are actually owned by their members. Oh. So when you join the club, you get a share in the company. Right. When you die or quit, someone else takes your share. Right. So if enough members die or quit, that would be a change in ownership, wouldn't it be? Yes. For six months, the city's lawyers sat and deliberated the issue. They concluded that no, the country clubs have not changed hands. Uh, so there's a Bel Air Country Club, and apparently it only has, so from 1978 to today, it only has about roughly 10% of the same members that it had back in 1978 today. Okay. So, hypothetically, well more than 50% of the ownership has been changed over. So, why hasn't its property taxes been changed? Right. right. So, they concluded that if there was at least one event that led to the transfer of ownership of more than 50%, then it is considered as not changing hands. Wait, what? So, the tax law concluded that as long as there wasn't at least one event that led to the oh, transfer oh, of at like least they 50%. all did leave at once because yes. they all left individually as or in died because they over the last couple of years you know you would have 5% change or 10% change or 2% change right. and then this year you had 20% 50% didn't occur at one time exactly they didn't right. see it as the company moving hands right so there's specific golf courses in California right now that are worth up to 9 Billion dollars. Wow. Which means their property tax would be $90 million. Yeah. There are some country clubs in California right now that, due to Proposition 13, set back in 1978, are paying a whopping $200,000 in property taxes. On a $9 billion assessment. Assessment, yeah. So let's go back to our original definitions of what that means. So mirological theory of identity states that the identity of something is the sum of all of its parts. So that right. means if you were to take that argument of, this, of these golf courses, the second that one member, being that it's an equity-owned share, that if one member were to leave the golf course, it is no longer Brentwood Golf Course. And therefore, golf course 2.0 or whatever, or you call it whatever you want, but it's no longer the entity that it once was, and therefore it's no longer locked into Proposition 13. It's now eligible for 19 million dollars worth of property taxes and would probably shut down. Right. Okay. Now the spatial temporal continuity theory, which an object can maintain its identity as so long as the change is gradual and the form of the shape of the object is pursued through you know, 
gradual changes. Yeah. Then in which case, it maintains the same. And therefore, you know, they don't fall into different hands and it maintains a structure and it stays at 1978. Yes. So what do you think? Do you think that it should be considered a change of hands where you have so many different people coming in and out? And when you look at some of these golf course clubs, a mere 10% of the members are the same from up to 1978 as they are today? Or do you think that it should be reassessed? Um, I mean, it's a weird thing because we're just talking the golf course as an entity in terms of shareholders. Like the golf course itself, like physically, is the same regardless. Yes, but arguably, wouldn't the house be the same as well? Like, if we're talking about a consumer, like a person. Like, I own a house and I sell it to you. The house stays the same, but the ownership changes. it's, It's the ownership, right. Yeah. Okay, so the, yeah, I mean, I think the, hmm, I think... Yeah, I mean, I do th- at the at the end of the day, I do think it should be reassessed because at this rate, unless something insane happens where fifty percent of members leave, it, they'll never have to pay more property taxes than they did in nineteen seventy nine. Exactly, nineteen seventy eight. Exactly. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so you're you're taking it in a standpoint of like ethically, you know, because hypothetically, the state of California is owed eighty nine million eight hundred thousand dollars worth of property tax that has to be subsidized from other means right so i mean I, I, thinking, but, I, but i don't i don't think that if they did change it i don't think they could then retroactively go back and be like before we changed our mind you owe us money no 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 what i mean is that over the years yes the the state of california has had to subsidize that money somewhere else right and the Ethically, you're you're thinking the exact same way that Malcolm Gladwell thought, which is, which by the way, he hates golf. He talks about it a right. lot, and I'm like, buddy, I love golf, but he <laughs> makes good arguments. He hates golf because it uses so much space, and no one's allowed to walk on these courses because they're private. And they have these big fences, and they don't let everybody in. You have to be rich and aristocratic. He just hates everything about golf. He hates everything about the societal stigma about it. But, um. You know, he he agrees with you in that sense that ethically, you know, if Joe Blow sells his house and all of a sudden he's got to do it, why doesn't a massive corporation such or not massive corporation, but a massive entity such as the golf course have to that they can get through by simple loophole, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of a little bit of a gray matter, hey? Very much gray matter. But I feel like you sit more on the uh the myriological theory of identity, which means... Yeah, I mean, I definitely do, because I think in that context, it'll never change otherwise. And it doesn't seem right, because there will come a time where there will be 0% of the original people from 1978 who are members now. Yep. So to say that it hasn't changed hands is insane. Yeah. Because it's changed literally every hand. Yeah, exactly. So I think, but at, at what point? But it, it was so gradual in its movement that it may have kept the same identity I throughout think that the entire was, I, change. I, I, yeah, but, I, but I, I mean, it didn't. If the identity is defined by its members in 1978, mm. then when 50% of those members were gone, then it, shouldn't have, it should have switched then. But obviously yeah. they weren't keeping good enough track. Sure. So, I mean, 
this is the, the the philosophical argument is about whether or not something is identified by the sum of its parts or yeah. by the gradual change and still keeping its same entity. Um, yeah. In terms of the tax law, like not the philosophical argument, but the tax law, it is one instance that's fifty, at least 50% or more. So they got away with it this time. Pesky <laughs> Those kids. pesky kids. Yeah. Um, so let's bring about the next one. So okay. the kind of paradox is is spoken about by a couple of uh, philosophers. Um, so one is obviously Plato talks about it a little bit. Heraclitus talks about it a little bit. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but uh, Plutarch talks about one, and then the paradox is Theseus's ship. Have you heard okay. about this one? I don't think so. Gotcha. So who Theseus is is kind of irrelevant, and it doesn't matter. But I want you to imagine. <laughs> Uh, someone's on a ship, okay? They Good. leave their port, and they're out in the open water, okay? While they're out at sea, they have brought with them all sorts of wood and planks and repairment parts for their boat. Okay. Throughout their travels, one by one, they slowly start to uh, take right. off an old plank yes, and replace I it with a this. new one yep. and throw the old one overboard. When yep. they get to port on the other side of wherever they're going, they have effectively changed every single plank on the ship. Yeah. Are they on the same ship that they left with, or are they now on a different ship? So, Mariological theory would state that they are on a completely different ship. Because the identity of it is the sum of its parts, which means it has different parts, it's a different ship. Mirologically speaking, if they replaced one board, they would say exactly. it's a different ship. Exactly. Yeah. So replacing spatial, every board is irrelevant. Spatial temporal continuity theory would state that because it was a gradual change and they kept the same form, shape, and style of it, that therefore it is the same ship. Yeah, I'm I fall in the middle. I say both are wrong. I say that the <laughs> I say the mirological theory, if if they said, you know, we re- we had to replace the uh, back deck because uh, Louis gained a couple of pounds, he ate too many fish and fell through. So <laughs> we had to replace the floor there. But it's not the same boat now because we replaced the floor. Like, no, it's the same boat. It is the same boat. But then in the other sense, you replaced every single piece of that ship. There's not one. When you left the harbor, there's not one piece left when you got to the next harbor. That's a different boat. But it looks the same. It floats the same. It, it it could even be the same color, same integrity. Let's even say they replaced it with not even better or newer pieces. Let's just say different pieces of the same integrity of the same matter. color, style, and every shape. single piece of the you know if if it's the same color, well they had to paint the new pieces. No, 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 not even like paint new pieces. I like they're just different pieces, but like look the same. Let's say you have two identical twin pieces of wood. Well, it doesn't matter. They're different. Sure. I mean, so they that's are. where you sit. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely where I sit because if you okay, so let's say you had a boat and you had all the necessary pieces to build the second boat, and you build the second boat yeah. next to the first boat. Yeah. They're both. Di- they're not the same boat. They're different boats. Exactly. Right? So if you just do it with the one boat, yes. even though you've done it slowly, replace it, it's irrelevant that you've done it slowly. You could have taken it all apart and put another one back together with the different pieces, but you just did it slowly. It's still a so different boat. Ar- arguably, 
your house, which you now call your home. You've changed your bathroom. You've changed your walls. You've painted your walls. You've broken down a wall. You've done all sorts of things and renovations to your house. Is this now a an effectively new house? No, because I didn't knock house? down the entire house and build a new house. No, okay. So piece by piece or one piece at a time. I get, but 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 no, no, because painting a wall is not the same as replacing an, every single wall in the house. If I is, took down the wall, the sum, you're changing the sum of its parts. No, it's not the same though. If it if is. you said I, we painted the boat a different color, then yes, it's the same boat. I painted my house a different color; it's the same house. I replaced every single piece of wood and floor and everything in my house. Yeah, that's a different house. Well, you replaced your floors. You've replaced your toilets. Your not shower. every floor. And also, re- I re- if I replaced the heart, you know, the I put um, laminate you- over the mm-hmm. floor that still existed. Mm-hmm. I just laid laminate on top of the floor that existed. So is your to- house just the foundation no though the, my house i think if i think the house is defined by the walls that exist and you know the the structure of the house you broke down walls in your kitchen okay okay i changed one half wall if i changed every single wall then yes so it's, it's a, a different, different house no 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 let's just talk about that one wall you broke down that wall yep is your house the same house as it was when you moved in? Or is it a different house now? In its identity. Are we looking, myriologically speaking, where it's the sum of all the parts? You took away a part from your home. Is it a different home? Or are we talking about spatial, temporal, continuity theory? Where the so, changes that okay. you made were gradual. And the form and the shape of your house is still the same. The object is still preserved as a gradual change. And everything is fine, so it still maintains okay. your home through the changes of your home. Well, then what if I build a piece onto my house? The form of the shape has changed. So is it now a different house? It, this is the point I'm trying to make. So this, like you can, you, you can take things away, but you can't add things? Is that no, the difference? No, you can take them away, and you can add them. It's but the, the form point and the shape of, will have changed. Exactly. And in both instances... But the, the shape of my house hasn't changed if I take away half of a wall in my kitchen. I think you're li- looking too literally in the idea of shape. In your house, we're talking metaphorically speaking. In the terms, I mean, I mean, you can also think of literally in your house as well. But <laughs> I love how you're getting so into this. <laughs> I'm very into it. <laughs> yeah. So because when it comes to the boat, I'm just referring to the house as the boat. Like, yes, I have no doubt in my mind. You, no one could convince me that that is the same boat. Okay. If they were like, there's one piece remaining from the old boat, I'd be like. I mean, even then, I give you a little bit of leeway. But if literally every single piece has changed, it's not the same boat. Okay, it's right, a so boat let's... that is the same shape that looks like the old boat, but it's a different boat. Okay, so let me let me twist it a little bit for you. Okay. Okay. Let's say Theseus died, and two thousand years later, we have his boat. Okay? okay. He didn't change anything. This is long before the the boat, and he did all sorts of stuff. Right. So we have a museum. Okay. Theseus's ship is in the museum. And it's there yeah. for everyone to look at and to see, and it's sought after, and it's amazing, and it's worth so much, and it's a, an artifact beyond measure. Okay? And these burglars come down, and they say, we want to steal this ship. It's obviously way too large to steal this ship and just walk out the front door with it. Yeah. So one day at a time, and, and this is an N number of days, mm-hmm. or an X number of days, they steal one block by one block and replace it with another. Mm-hmm. 
and slowly they replace it and end up leaving a replica of the boat in mm-hmm. the museum. Yep. But replace all of the boats and put it, put it back together somewhere else. Yep. In what context is that? At what point in the transaction of stealing plank by plank or rearranging it is the entity the same? So is the boat that they have stolen the same boat? Now that they have put it back together, or is it the one that has been left at the museum, the same boat? This doesn't seem like, like an argument to me. It feels like there's only one side to this. The boat they put together is the same boat. They took every piece from a boat, took it apart, and put it back together in another place. That's the same okay. boat. So you, you, you already you, said, you used the word replica, and that's exactly it. The one that's in the museum is a replica. It's not the same yeah. boat. Every piece yeah. is different. Yeah. So you are a very mariological thinker, which means that. The, the, the thing that it is is the sum of all of its items, which means if you change the sum of its items, then it is different. Well, no, because in terms of my house, I don't agree. But in a I boat, I think my you house do. is. St- in the case of the boat, when you change every single piece, I do. Yeah. But this, if is, the you phil- took- this is the paradox is that in certain things, why is it one or the other? Why is it in some items or some things or the way you think about it? Some are mirological and some are the spatial temporal. Well, in the two cases you just said about my house and the boat, the difference isn't because it's like, why? The difference is because it's a different analogy. If you took apart my entire house and put it back together somewhere else, I'd be like, yeah, that's the same house. But, but if, if you, you did it, but if you renovate it slowly. my bathroom, I'm not going to be like, what do you mean if you did it slowly? It doesn't matter how the speed at which you Evan, reassemble Evan, it. Evan, 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 you're missing my point. If I say, if I take your bath, your, your, your toilet out of your house and walk away from it yeah. with, with your toilet, yes. immediately it is no longer your house. Yeah, I disagree with that. I think it stills my house. It just is one toilet less. I'll go buy a new toilet. Exactly. Okay, so you are actually arguing with yourself because you can't have your cake and eat it too. The argument is that the second you take one piece out, it is no longer what it was before. Because myriologically speaking, it is the sum of all of its parts. You take out one of its parts, it's no longer what it was before. So if I, I then, but then if I take all of those items and reconstruct it somewhere else slowly and put it together somewhere else, then it becomes whole again. It becomes the entity, but that would be myriologically speaking. But the spatial temporal continuity is that because I do it slowly, like you said, if Buddy gets too fat and he breaks apart the arse of the ship, right? And, and you got you to gotta fix up that part. Well, it's the same ship, right? You're doing things slowly. And the idea is that it's still retaining its shape and its continuity, its identity within the small, minute changes. And to the point where, let's say Buddy fell through the arse of it, you fixed it. And then let's say Jack was trying to hold Jill at the front saying, I can fly. And then she falls off and actually <laughs> breaks the front. Um, Jack and Jill. It's not Jill. It's Jack and Rose. She breaks the front of the ship. <laughs> I like Jack and Jill. It was better. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she breaks the front, and then you break the front, and then Captain Hook is steering the wheel, but he's got a hook on his hand, so he cuts the steering wheel. So then you got to fix the <laughs> steering wheel, and then before you know it, you've slowly repaired every single part of the ship, but you've done so slowly to the part where your identity of the ship has still remained the ship. And at no point have you said a massive part of the ship has changed its identity to change what you perceive the ship as it is. Does that make yeah. sense? 
yeah, no, it does make sense. That was a better way of explaining it. Um, if like, yeah, over the course of 50 years, like, oh, we got to do a little fix here, we got to do a little fix here. And by the end of those 50 years, every part of the ship has been replaced. Yes, let me, let, I should you, have rephrased this. You, you as someone ship. on the ship, yeah, but as someone on the ship wouldn't be like, yeah, this is a different boat. But if from the, from the philosophical standpoint, if I think of something and every aspect of it has been replaced, then it's not the same boat. But if you are somebody who's on the boat and you're like, no, I've been here the whole time. This is the same boat. We've just, you know, done a little thing here, done a little thing there. I yeah. get how they would say it's the same boat. Yeah. So I, I guess in terms of Theseus's ship, let's put it this way. Let's say he sailed from port A and was on the water for a hundred years. And over the hundred years, he changed everything eventually. And then when he ported again, it was all new stuff. But while he was doing it, it was so gradual. And you know what I mean? Like it's that kind of perception yes. of whether or not. Yes. Yes. When you so kept saying the... slow, I was thinking like over the course of a couple of weeks. No, no, that's my they, bad. Like, I, their I their goal was let's change everything on this ship. No, you that know, was my, I'm like, well, I should have specified. Yeah. It's about the and th- and that's in the definition of gradual change. Right, yeah. a slow, long, gradual. Yeah, I mean, change. you said slow a lot to the point where I was like, "Why does Jeff keep saying slow?" Like, no, Evan, yeah. I'm talking slow. I'm like, I know, but like, you know, still just a different boat. But if you're like, okay, a hundred years, you do a little bit here, you do a little bit there. Yeah, I get that. Yes, and I have one final example for you. Okay. Okay. So this is what Heraclitus stated, and I'm sure you've heard it before. Uh, he questioned, or he said, uh, he wonders whether you can step. In the same river twice. Ah. Yeah. So so does Pocahontas. Yes, yes. Pocahontas is often questioned that many times as well. So obviously a river is is running. So you can step your foot into the river, obviously, and step it back out and step it back in. But technically you're never touching. You can shake it all about if you want. And you can do the hokey pokey. (laughs) Turn yourself around. Yeah, that's what it's all about. But you're never touching the same same Water. water or the same water particles as you touched before. Right. So in the same, you know, continuity or the temporal continuity or the mereological speaking, is the river the same river? The constant change and flow of gradual change of water and water particles. Is it the same or is it different every time? So every time you step your foot, is it a different river? Is it a different? You can call it whatever you want. You can continually call it Rennie's River if you want. (laughs) But is it the same Rennie's River you step your foot in? 20 seconds or 20 minutes or 20 years later. I feel like that comes down to the, uh, you know, how would how do you define a river? Is a river the water flowing through it? Or is a river a, you know, canal-like water body that water flows through? Is, is yeah. You know what I mean? So if you say, okay, like, I dip my foot in the river sticks. Yeah, I walked, I walked the river sticks three or four times. That's true. You did. The water was different. You know what I mean? But like, you wouldn't, you don't change the name of it. You don't call it something else because the water that you just stepped in is now a kilometer down. So, if the river sticks were to, you know, global warming dry up, would it still remain that, or would it still have become the new Grand Canyon? I think it would be the river form. No, the the, the, the sticks formerly known as the river sticks, maybe. <laughs> um. Uh. Yeah. I mean, there's a question. I mean, I would. So think then it would change its identity. A, a river, it would definitely would because a river. I think river, by definition, has to have water flowing through it. Okay. So if the water all dried up, you can be like, yeah, that's the river there. No, you'd say that's where the river sticks used to be before it dried up. 
Yeah, that's 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 arguable. But after a while, if people like after three generations, they'd stop calling it that. It would just become a rut. Yeah, exactly. So it wouldn't be the River Styx. Exactly. So it, I would. It wouldn't be the River Styx the second the water dried up. But people would be like, "That's what the River Styx used to be." Okay, so let's say the River Styx continued, or Rennie's River continued forever and ever. There was always a body of water. Could you yep. step in the same Rennie's River twice? I mean, yes, you're not stepping in the same water, obviously, but yeah. you're still stepping in the 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 river referred to as Rennie's River. So that is the spatial temporal continuity theory, where as long as the changes are minute and minor, and there's no major changes, and it still holds its integrity and shape and the identity, then it's fine, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's that theory behind it. So it, the same concept could be also brought to it about as can you evan smith step into the same river twice not the river being the questionable thing but the ever-changing person and you as a thing as an identity uh the body is in constant change not only of dying cells and rejuvenating cells but you're growing in every way shape or form mentally emotionally philosophically um but more importantly in this particular instance we're talking about cells dying and regrowing and i think up until a certain part in your life every eight years i think is what it is you are a completely yes, right. different entity in terms of your yeah. cells right yeah. so if one time you step in the river then whatever the number is, eight years, 10 years, five years, after your body's fully, completely regenerated itself of new cells, then you step in that river again. Are you the same person that stepped in that same river twice? I mean, then again, I just, it's, what's your, defi- your definition of the self? Is the self the mind or is yourself the physical self, as in the cells have all changed? No, right? let's talk about the cells have all changed. Like physically, you as an entity. Like, like physiologically, not emotionally, because well, then, well, not. I'm not talking emotionally. I'm talking like when you like when you talk about you, Evan Smith. I don't define myself by my cells. Mm. Do you know what I mean I, I define mm. myself by my personality and myself? So like that, my uh, inner self. Yeah, exactly. So that is the spatial continuity. But right? you I would, are not I would the say, sum. You are not the sum of all your parts. Right, but I would say that if we're talking. In the other way, if we're saying, okay, does the same physical Evan Smith step in the river twice? Definitely not, because the cells have all changed. Yeah. You know? So I can see both sides of it. Yeah, exactly. Where, where the paradox is. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a paradox depending on what way you want to define the self. And if you're defining it as the physical self, well then... No, you're different. If you're defining yourself as the definition of self, emotional self, intel, intel, intellect, personality, then yeah, that person does step in twice. Mm, but also technically no, because you're changing all the time emotionally and psychologically. You can be a completely different person. Imagine as someone who yeah, just as, that's true. You know what I mean? Just taking yeah. as a as a very broad, erratic example, but someone who is an addict. You know what I mean? Yeah. There is a point where the addict changes to an addict. Do you know what I mean? Like, a, what, like if the person steps in the river and then six years later, eight years later, they're a completely different person. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. Um, so there's obviously two arguments. It's how you define the identity, whether or not you see it as a sum of all the components. And the second that component changes, it's no longer what it is. Or is it 
you know, these sudden gradual change of all of its components, you know? So there's lots of examples. Yeah. You can take, a, you can take cool. a, an Apple computer. I'm here looking at my Mac, right? You take the motherboard out of the Mac or you take the keyboard out of the Mac. Is it still the Mac? You can be like, well, no, it's not the Mac because the Mac has, you know, integral parts that, you know, it's only Mac. It's blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But if Apple decides to slowly integrate its keyboards or slowly change its motherboard to have the new M1 chip, it's it still Mac? Is it still holding the same spatial temporal continuity or is it, you know, meritological? I mean, it's, I mean, yes, it's still a Mac because the company Apple is describing it as the new Mac. That's spatial, though. I mean, That's spatial temporal continuity. That you are accepting that minor slow changes still hold its identity. Well, no, but also a Mac is not a singular thing. Like there is an iMac, there is a MacBook. There, you know, okay, what well, I mean? okay. Like, sorry, 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 sorry. MacBook Pro, a MacBook Pro computer. I'm looking at my MacBook Pro. That's exactly what it is. If okay. I were to take the motherboard or the charging port or the keyboard out of this MacBook Pro, is it still a MacBook Pro? If the answer is no, because you took out the keyboard or you took out the motherboard, okay. But then when Apple in three years from now, decides to change the keyboard or the motherboard or to do something, does that mean that it still retains its identity as the MacBook Pro, or is it no longer the MacBook Pro? It's the new upgraded MacBook Pro. It's not the same as the one before. It's an upgraded version. Ooh, how interesting that now you flipped. Because before, you would say that it is the same, it's just gradual changes. But now it's a completely new identity. MacBook Pro version 2 different so the sum of the item or the item is defined as the sum of its products if you say that one more time i'm going to lose my mind what (laughs) the two definitions of the things you're like this is the sum this other one is not the sum like yes i understand (laughs) there's the two kinds well screw you then (laughs) all right let's end this episode all right folks we had a great episode today i had lots of fun Evan's an I, asshole. I honestly, He'll continue to well, be an asshole. Evan's the sum of all assholes. And if <laughs> I just feel like if I could go through the episode and find every time you said it and then play in a loop, it would be like 46 minutes. <laughs> okay. Well, that's it. Sucks to suck. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think again, it's I think all of it is like I will definitely flip-flop back and forth. I will I won't be one or the other in in any situation. Right, it's I'm totally dependent on the situation that you described. Like, okay, yeah, that's that's no longer a MacBook. Wait, now it's because that did that. Now it is right. Mm-hmm. It's like it's it's the definition of what they're describing is like so important. Yes, indeed. Anyways, another fruitful episode uh, for the Splendid Podcast. Got My to God, say. the 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 tree is blossoming like you wouldn't believe. I bet. Do you it's know what? Very, did I expect no, no. Anything... I, I meant the tree of the podcast. I didn't mean the plant Tiffany was holding. It was kind of a, 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 um, a metaphor for both. Sure. But to be honest with you, there's nothing I would expect less than me and you getting into an argument talking about philosophy. No, it's literally the point. Yeah. So, folks, we hope you enjoyed that. Um, a great episode. Obviously, uh, tune in and strap in for another uh, amazing topics that we're going to have next week. More arguments, more fun, uh, lots of learning, uh, because I think we both learned lots from this uh, from this episode. And as always, please 
like, comment, and share on Facebook, Instagram. Tell us what you think. Let us know when we've made mistakes, because clearly all of you have missed it. Um, <laughs> please shout it from the hills and let us Either know. Either that or you've been making a lot of spelling mistakes for a very long time, people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what? We also would love it if you would send us in a topic, please, at info at at gmail.com. Yes, and as always, we're trying to grow our podcast, get as many people listening as possible. So please, if you could rate and review on wherever you listen to your podcast, but more specifically on Apple Podcast. For those of you who don't know us personally or through friends of friends, if you're just trying to discover a new podcast to listen to, just trying to listen to something new and to grow, that is how they do it, by uh, by going through rating and reviews. That's how you pop up through Apple Podcasts. So we'd appreciate it there as well. We hope you learned something this week. And if you didn't, there's always next week. That's philosophy.